0: Hey, don't worry, we charged him for all the communion that he wasted in making that video. Hey, that pretty much sums up the communion experience since COVID, doesn't it, right? Every single one of you has been there. How many of you, be honest, has given up on communion at least once out of sheer embarrassment or frustration or because you spilled it all over yourself? Anybody? Yeah, that's me. I have done that so many times. We've been experimenting with a couple different communion brands, and it's, it's really funny to watch you guys rummage through the basket like you're a kid at the dentist's office going through the treasure box trying to find your favorite one. You know, we got red-label Christians and white-label Christians, and they won't really associate with one another. And you finally find a few of them that are the kind you like, so you scoop them all up and stick them in your pocket or your purse so that you're good for the rest of the month. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. This has been a crazy experience for us as we talk about communion. But you know, the truth of the matter is, we we joke about communion like this a lot, but communion has actually caused more divisions, more conflict historically in the church than just about any other issue. See, here's what I mean by that. We can't agree on what to call it. You see, some churches call it the Lord's Supper, some call it communion, some call it the Eucharist. We can't agree on how to take it. Some use juice. It has to be Welch's grape juice for some people. Okay, some insist on using wine. We can't agree on the frequency. Some take it weekly like us, and, and others take it quarterly, and some even take it yearly or even more sparingly than that. We can't even agree on the meaning. For some, it's, it's a metaphor of what Jesus did for us, and for others, there's an actual physical transformation that happens in the communion meal. Let me tell you something, the name and the brand, they don't really matter all that much, but Paul does warn about attention surrounding communion in one of his letters to the church. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. He says, in the following directives. In other words, in the following instructions that I'm about to give about communion in the context of how we take this meal together, he says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In other words, what he's saying is that there's something about the way the church was taking this meal that negates everything else that happened in their time together. I want you to think for just a minute about the implications of that. You see, he says there's something about the way we take communion together. And we do this every single week. There's something about the way we take this that has the power to cast a shadow on everything else we do together. It has the ability to cast a shadow on our worship time. Our worship was great today, wasn't it? Just wait until next week, that's all I'm gonna say. It's gonna be so, so good. We had great worship, but if we don't handle this right, it casts a shadow on that. If we don't handle this correctly, it has the power to cast a shadow on our prayers on our study of scripture, on our fellowship, on our children's ministry. Even our offering is impacted by whether or not we manage this correctly. You see, Paul goes on to talk about that and he highlights the church's disunity and lack of commitment to or concern for one another. But then he he gets to the heart of the matter. In the midst of his frustration and his disappointment with the church, he brings them back to what this communion meal is all about. This is what he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. You see, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he instituted this meal so that through it, we could proclaim his death until he comes again. Let me tell you what's powerful about that. It, because Jesus chose to memorialize his death in that moment. Not his life, not his teaching, not his miracles. Those things were important, But Jesus' primary purpose in coming to earth was to die for the sins of the world. And he calls us as believers to come together and to always remember what our salvation costs. Listen, that's why we choose to take communion together every single week. You don't have to do it every week. The Bible doesn't instruct us to do it every single week. But that's how we choose to do it so that every week we can focus on what salvation costs. That's why churches across the world decorate their buildings with crosses as a reminder of what Jesus did for them. That's why churches across the world in different musical styles are singing this morning about the love of Jesus because it reminds them of what Jesus has done for them, what their salvation costs. But somewhere along the way, I'm afraid that many of us have settled for an elementary version of this gift. When what Jesus calls us to do is to gaze at the uncomfortable reality of his great sacrifice. Listen, this week is the week that we're leading up to our Easter celebration next week. And I want you to know that it's going to be a heavy Sunday this week. Things are going to go really, really far today as we unpack the days leading up to the very first Easter. So much so that if you have a young child in here, you may reach a point in the service where you say, I think I'm gonna step out with them and that's okay, that's, that may be something that you need to do. But on the other side, this may be one of those messages that you say if you have an older child or a family member or a friend that doesn't know what Christianity is all about, this may be the week that you say, hey, I wanna watch this service with you again so that we can talk about what our salvation cost. Because today we're gonna focus on the cross, We're going to focus on the crucifixion. We're going to focus on the death of Jesus Christ so that at the end of the service, we can come together and we can take communion together, fully understanding and remembering what it represents and celebrating it together. You see, Jesus went to the cross for us, and he went to the cross as a unmatched, unrelenting love for you and me, and we want to spend a few minutes with that today. So let's dive into it. The week begins with what's known as the triumphal entry. Anybody heard of that before? Triumphal entry? Nobody. Okay, then it's a good thing we're talking about this. Jesus comes in and it's referred to as the triumphal entry, but Jesus fulfills scripture by riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. The crowd cheers. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And, And that's basically a declaration of adoration and celebration enjoy. The Bible actually tells us that many of the people that were in the crowd, they they took off their cloaks and they laid them on the ground so that even Jesus' donkey didn't have to touch the dirt and soil his feet. Those that didn't have a cloak, they grabbed branches and they laid them down so that they could treat Jesus like royalty. He was a king to them. But a few short days later, Jesus stops with his disciples to pray. This is something he's done a ton of times before, but when he pulls off with his disciples on this night, there's something different. There's there's an urgency in his voice. There's an intensity in his eyes. And Jesus begins to pray about what he knows is about to happen to him. Now, as he prays, he, he falls to his face and he pleads with God. He says, if it is possible, please find another way. You see, Jesus understood what he was about to go through, and he said, God, if there is any way that you can let this cup pass from me, if there's any other way we can achieve salvation, please find a way to do it. In that moment, with the full realization of what's about to happen, he felt so much pressure and stress that he began to suffer from a condition known as hematidrosis. What this means is is that the blood vessels in his head began to burst and they began to mix with his sweat glands. And that's why the Bible tells us that he literally began to sweat drops of blood. But despite his emotions, he commits to doing whatever it takes. Just then, Judas, one of Jesus' closest followers, he, he finds him in the garden and he, he approaches him with a crowd of men carrying weapons and soldiers looking to arrest him. You see, Jesus has been betrayed by a friend. He's been sold out for money. He's arrested, he's abandoned, he's chained, mocked, beaten, and spit upon. At one point, the Bible even tells us that they covered his head and then they beat him and they asked him to prophesy about who it was that had hit him. He was taken before the Sanhedrin. This is a a local court and although he's done nothing wrong, he's found guilty of made-up charges and a bogus trial. The problem is, as they see it, is that the local court is not given the authority to carry out the death penalty. And so they decide they're not satisfied with the outcome of this trial. They carry Jesus to the Roman governor to get something more. Before the Roman governor, many of the same voices that cried out Hosanna just days before now chant for his crucifixion and his death. Although the Roman governor questions him, and he finds him innocent, even going so far as to try and free him. He agrees to crucify Jesus only to save his political career. At this point, Jesus was strapped to a wooden post. What they would have done is they would have exposed his back while soldiers took a whip that's known as a flagrum. I did a lot of research on this this week, and, and essentially this would be a whip that had a handle and it had um, these, these whips that would come out from it. There were somewhere between three and 12 of them. And every single one of these straps was embedded with lead tips and sharp objects like glass, nails, pottery, and bone. It was essentially designed to create as much pain and torture as humanly possible. This was referred to as a scourging and it was often administered 39 times until the victim's back was shredded from his shoulders to the tops of his legs. This is what the Bible refers to and it says, by his stripes, we were healed. A third century historian, he describes this process and and he says this, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews and bowels of the victim were opened to exposure you see after this type of a beating many people would die but but jesus kept going the guards carried him off and, and they fashioned a crown out of thorns. Now we, we're in Georgia and we think of thorns as these little bitty things like this, but, but they had thorns that reached up to three inches long and, and they fashioned a crown out of them and they, they shoved it deep into his skull. They, they placed a scarlet robe on his back and a reed in his hand. They mocked him and they beat him until it was time to escort him to his death. At this point, it's believed that Jesus would have been suffering from what's known as hypovolemic shock. This is a dangerous condition that's caused by such a great loss of blood. It it prevents the heart from pumping enough blood, and it can actually cause your organs to stop working. But despite his physical state, Jesus continued. He was forced to carry his own cross, and we don't know exactly what that looked like if it was the full cross. Most, more than likely, it was the cross beam that he was forced to carry. This would have been the beam that he would eventually be nailed to by his hands and it would have weighed somewhere between 70 and 110 pounds. Now we don't know all the details about this journey, but we do know that somewhere along the way, Jesus became so weak that he was unable to carry the cross any further alone. And they pulled somebody in from the crowd to help him carry the cross. But Jesus kept going. When they arrived at their destination in Golgotha, they laid Jesus on the beam and they stretched out his arms as wide as they would go, probably dislocating both of his shoulders in the process. And they took five to nine inch nails and they hammered them into his wrists. Now, a lot of people believe that they would have been hammered into his hands. That's what most of the paintings show. But if they had hammered them into his hands, they couldn't have supported the weight of his body on the cross. And so they had learned to hammer them between the two bones in your wrist so that it could support him on the cross. And when they hammered them through this, if you push on your wrist, you'll feel a little bit of pain because there's a nerve there. It's the median nerve. It's compared oftentimes to the ulnar nerve. And it would have felt much like somebody took pliers to that nerve, to your funny bone, to the ulnar nerve, and, and twist and pull. The same thing was done to his feet. The pain was so unbearable that it was literally beyond words to describe it. As a matter of fact, they invented a word to describe this. That word is excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. Once hung in a vertical position, Jesus would struggle to breathe. Every single breath would require him to to essentially pull up so that he could take a breath, dragging his beaten back on that splintered cross every time he wanted to take a breath. This is why a lot of times during the crucifixion, if it took too long, they would come out and break the sufferer's legs so that they couldn't push up anymore. They could only pull and they would tire much more quickly, but Jesus didn't have to go through that because he passed too quickly. See, this lasted for about six hours until finally Jesus became too weak to continue. So he cried out in a loud voice. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He took his last breath and he finished what he came to do. Let's go back to what Jesus said before his crucifixion. The bread is my body given for you "Cup is my blood poured out for you." You see, Jesus wanted these words to press heavy on our hearts, not because they're poetic, not but because they're spiritual, but because they are the real picture of what love cost. His body and his blood are the currency of unending love. Romans 5.8, it says this, it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, when we were the most unlovable and undeserving, when we were buried under the weight of our sin, a sin that separated us from the God that created us, the Bible tells us that Jesus suffered Jesus bled, Jesus persevered, and Jesus died as a demonstration of love for you and for me. Listen, this is not the end of the story, but it is the place that we draw our attention to right now. You see, what we often do is we like to rush past this part of the story because this is the uncomfortable part of the story. We want to get to the good stuff where Jesus has resurrected and it's, it's done and death is defeated and that time is coming but you gotta understand the disciples had to sit in this moment for three long days. That's why they were found trembling behind a locked door, paralyzed by fear, paralyzed by doubt, and overcome with emotions. You see, we'll get to the celebration of victory and the triumph over the grave. That moment is coming, but this moment is about one simple truth. Christ died for us as a demonstration of love, Christ died for us. Through communion, we remember and we proclaim that truth. Through communion, we focus all of our attention and all of our energy on the one thing that matters more than anything else. You see, the Easter bunny, the candy in baskets, the dyed eggs, and the fancy Easter clothes, that stuff doesn't really matter. The brand of communion, the taste of the cracker, they just don't seem like that big of a deal. Even the things that consumed our thoughts and attention all week long seem insignificant next to the greatest demonstration of love this world has ever known. Christ died for you and Christ died for me. For just a few moments, we're gonna sit in that and we're gonna thank Jesus for the gift of the cross. Will's gonna come up and he's gonna play a song. This is a contemplative song that he's gonna play in the background. It's got some lyrics that you may wanna lean into and listen to as you sit there quietly. Or maybe you just wanna spend a few moments focusing on the picture of everything we've just talked about, recognizing that Jesus died in your place. We deserve to thank him for that and worship him every single day of our lives. After a few moments, after this song plays, Jonathan's gonna come up and he's gonna lead us through a time of communion so that with a full understanding of what Jesus did for us, we can celebrate it through this communion meal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this, this moment is all about the gift of the cross. Lord, we're not distracted. We're not turning our attention to the left or the right or to anything else that's waiting for us when we leave. This moment is is one that's set aside so that we can just focus on you. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for repairing the damage that my sin caused. Lord, as we just get quiet, as we sit in your presence, as as we prepare our hearts for the Easter celebration that's coming next week. Lord, let us feel the full weight of the sacrifice of Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message. You can keep up with what's happening at Northridge on your mobile device through our Northridge Christian app. If you have any questions about Northridge, you can contact us at info at